consume in worship. C.S. Lewis has screw tape to advise his demon understudy Wormwood that if he can't cure a man of church going, he should surely aim to turn him into a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic or the enemy wants him to be a pupil. If we think of ourselves as consumers, we will view ourselves as the audience and those that lead us in the service up here will be viewed as here to inspire and even worse still possibly entertain us rather than understanding that God is the audience and that we are beggars made heirs of God through the Father's love and the Son's obedience and death and resurrection and the Spirit's new birth and that we have now come by His grace to give something to God that He alone deserves and that we can only give Him through Jesus Christ in order that we might be what He made us to be, that is, worshipers, and that we might enjoy what He's made us to enjoy. Worship is eternal, as one said. Missions is temporary. If we don't get our worship right, we won't get our missions right. If we don't get our worship in prime of place, we won't get much else right in the Christian life. Corporate worship or body worship, as it's derived from the Latin word corpus, meaning body, or the gathered out worshipers, which is the meaning of the church, is to gather out, or group worship, you might call it as distinct from private or family or worship. This group worship, this corporate worship is about participating, not about consuming because you are not my audience. God is our audience. Do you see the distinction there? And what a distinction it is. It carries real meaning. It brings real difference to our lives and to our worship on Sundays when we come on the Lord's Day and seek Him and we worship Him. The compiler of that former quote I just read also warned about how consumer mindset plays out practically. And I'll quote, The problem of the people, exacerbated by church leaders who play to this, is taking a consumer mindset to corporate worship. If we come as religious consumers to public services of worship, what we'll actually do is is consume less good, ironically, by trying to simply be a consumer rather than a participant in worship. We will have the attitude of a, a customer, like at a retail store. And as a customer, we will think, as they say, the customer is always right. It's all about what we want, what we think. It's about our opinions. The Bible makes clear to us quite the opposite, that when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, that's defined in the book of Judges as chaos, not cosmos or order. It's defined as confusion, not that which brings for peace. God brings us peace. So when we ask questions like, did I like the musicians and the music, rather than did the congregational singing help me worship God And was it filled with the truth of Scripture? When we ask, did I like the preacher and his preaching, rather than was the preaching faithful to the Bible? And did it expound God and the gospel and godliness from his word? And did I respond to it in faith and wonder and love and praise of God? When we ask the former questions, we're more like customers. When we ask the latter questions, we're more like participants. God is our audience. And I think that gets at the nub of what our text is talking about today. You certainly need to be critical in determining a healthy church to unite in membership with, such as when you move or have a change of life situation. However, you must not remain as the critic. One famously said in a speech, it's not the critic who counts, 
It's the man in the arena. We must enter the arena of the church. There we move from critic to pupil. That's what our corporate worship is all about. And as participants, we find ourselves ready to receive from the God that not only has given us so much, but gives us so much. Now let us look at Revelation 19, 1 to 10. This says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. May God bless the reading of his word, administer grace unto the hearers, and may today we be more participants than customers as we navigate this text. I'd like to take this text on three parts this morning. First, I'd like to take five verses, verses 1 through 5, and I would like to look at a healthy fear of God. Second, I'd like to look at verses 6, 7, and 8. And I would like to look at a healthy love from God. And then thirdly, in verses 9 and 10, I'd like to take the time to look at healthy instruction from God. So our key themes in this text is, number one, fear. Number two, love. And number three, instruction. There's lots of synonyms you could use for instruction, I'm sure, but I've chosen that word this morning with some degree of care. Now, before we get into those three points, let me offer a word of overview about this text. Revelation 19 is the fifth of seven cycles of judgments shown in the book of Revelation. Those cycles are seals and trumpets and historical figures and bowls, and now we're in Babylon, the fifth cycle. We're going to see with the, the, with the next judgments, the white horse judgment and the white throne judgment. And there is an eighth and culminating act in Revelation. It's a beautiful end of the book in 21 and 22. It's where the new Jerusalem comes, which we should all be thankful for indeed. 
The seven cycles that I'm describing here parallel one another, all cover the same time period leading up to the second coming, as one said, but each cycle does so from its own distinct vantage point. Later cycles, as we go through the book of Revelation, they have more and more intensification. The most intense phases of the conflict seem to really pop as we get into these latter cycles in Revelation and as we consider the second coming of Christ itself. So this morning, let us remember those two words that we read, worship God, worship God. And I'm going to advocate this morning that God is readying for himself a people to worship him through a healthy fear. So our first thought for processing this morning for consideration, for reasoning together about, comes from verses 1 through 5, and I'm sort of umbrellaing this, uh, bringing an umbrella phrase to this, a healthy fear, as over and opposed to an unhealthy fear, to be sure. So God is readying for himself a people to worship. Our text says, worship God, and it is through a healthy fear. It's probably worth noting from the onset of this first point, the prolific usage of the word hallelujah in our text. If you were to count them, you would see it four times mentioned. And if you were to count them, you would count the only usages of the word hallelujah in the New Testament of your Bible. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And hallelujah is a word that is transliterated straight from Hebrew to Greek to English. Kind of like amen or amen, these are words that we would carry through across time and would have power in and of themselves across language. Hallelujah, praise Yahweh or praise God, is a common refrain in the Psalms 113 to 118, which are often called the Hallel Psalms or the Hallelujah Psalms, Psalms that bring praise to God and look forward to the Redeemer. Those are psalms that we often consider, particularly around the time of Easter, or Resurrection Sunday. Hallelujah summarizes the theme of the sermon quite well because worshiping God is about bringing praise to God, and it's the definition of hallelujah. Now, what seems to be going on here is John the Apostle, as an older man, hears as a part of his continued vision on the Lord's day, as he's caught up in the Spirit, he hears things that he's supposed to observe and write down for the benefit of the saints. Not just for the saints that he knows of in the first century, but for the saints in every century within the church until kingdom come. And so it says here that the voice is loud that he's hearing with this intensification in the book of Revelation as these cycles of explanation of the end of time intensify this voice has gotten loud, and there is a great multitude in heaven crying out as if harmonizing in unison, praising God. Hallelujah. Well, what are they praising him for? Well, the text says that they're praising him for what belongs to him, what is his. And it says here that three things belong to God in verse 1. Salvation, glory, and power. So we are to worship God with a healthy fear because God is so huge, big, eternal, powerful. And because God himself authors, finishes, is responsible for, 
is the, the sole proprietor of your salvation and our salvation. There is an individual aspect of salvation, and there is a corporate aspect of salvation. You might describe your individual aspect as being a member singular of the body of Christ. But as this text will go on to explain, you should consider your salvation corporate because what will be, we be known as on the day of the Lord? We'll be known as a collective, not a collective Babylon, but to the contrary, we're going to be known as a collective what? Bride, the bride of Christ. So there are individual and corporate aspects, and we need to consider both if we're going to have a biblical doctrine of salvation. And salvation and judgment bring glory to God. And so there's the trifecta. Another thing that you might notice in this text that helps us worship God by having beginning a, a, with a healthy fear of God is that there is a possessiveness to God being ours. Now, if you look at your Bible in chapter 18, verse 4, you're going to see this kind of possessive language in that chapter as well, and it's indicative of a pattern in Scripture. It says in Revelation 18, 4, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, which goes on to say her sins were heaped up as high as heaven. So Babel or Babylon or the coercive, worldly, seductive, and persecuting power in any age, as described in the past as ancient Babylon or in the present here as Rome, in the future as other other powers as well, those that prey on the church that is not the church, they're considered a part of earthly or worldly Babylon. And Babylon seems too big to fail. But if you've been following with the sermons, or if you want to go back and consider chapter 17 and 18, it is a, a, a great statement of the failure of Babylon at the end of time. God wins. God conquers. God's name is vindicated, and His saints are avenged. And so God here is describing in Revelation 18, my people, and now we see in 19 that these things belong to our God. Well, who is our? Well, our is us. It's those of us that have received salvation, is it not? We are His and He is ours. There, there is a relationship here. And so that is central, I think, to understanding this text. If, if you look through the text, you'll see other places where this possessive language is used. Let's see if we can find one. Look at verse 5. It says, Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, small and great. So this possessiveness, He's ours, we are His. It's not like we control Him. It's that we are in relationship with Him. You wouldn't control your earthly father, if you're in a, a, a normal sort of circumstance where, where dad's home and all whatnot and you're a kid, I'm talking to the kids here, you don't control your father, do you? Just because he's yours. Like you don't say, I control you because you're mine. No, what do you say? You say, well, that's, that's my dad. Well, why do you say that? Because he is yours. But you don't control him, do you? That's not what a good father is like. And I suspect that's exactly part of the problem with this first point and with understanding this text is we're all coming from different places when it comes to our understanding of fatherhood. It's a really mixed bag. Some of us have extremely, uh, extremely uh, sad, if not angry, visions toward fatherhood. And some of us have fairly elevated visions of fatherhood. We're coming from all different places. But what, what I have to do to cut through that a bit at this juncture in the sermon 
and to try to help you with God's Word is just to say that your Heavenly Father does not mimic the failings of our earthly fathers. He does not mimic the failings of our earthly fathers. So whether your tendency is to place too much stock in your earthly father as compared to your heavenly father or not enough, the truth of the matter is this father gave us the gift of fatherhood and he is ours in the sense that a good father is ours, not that we control him, but that he is in relationship with us. It's a hurdle to get over to be sure. And what you might ask at this juncture is, well, what, what is this with fearing someone that's supposed to be in a fatherly relationship with me? Well, I think there is an earthly parallel here. A more or less faithful earthly father instills a certain amount of reverential fear in the children, right? Like, you just don't push around on dad. I mean, he's going to take care of you and he loves you, but he's not your buddy. He's to be respected. It's a kind of reverential awe. Does that make sense? Parents, be careful of seeking too much gratification from the friendship with your children. You are their parent before you're their friend. Now, I say that very carefully because it is right to say I am a friend of God, isn't it? But if you begin with the starting point of God is my buddy, you probably will not back into God to be reverentially feared. When you read the Bible, you run across phrases like the one I'm about to say. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, do you know how it finishes? It's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To put it differently, you can't start to understand the doctrine of God without beginning with a healthy fear of God. You, you have to understand this vastness. Can we bring those lights up a little bit? It's a little dim in here to me. I can't hardly see my Bible. Thanks. I appreciate it. You have to start with this bigness of God, how big He is, and then how small you are by comparison, and then you can begin to appreciate the wonder of this relationship that we have with him. He's ours. But you don't start with buddy Jesus. That's not where it starts. And hopefully more about that as we go. We start with a healthy fear of God. It's the beginning of knowledge. And then, as Peter exhorts us, we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we, we have to start with first things. We have to start in the right places. Here we have in verse 2 a description of his judgments as both true and just. His judgments as judge God are not like our earthly judges. Our earthly judges, we can give you example after example after example after example of judges that have rendered unjust judgments, can't we? It's at, at best, a really faithful judge might show us something about God like a really faithful father might. But again, God as judge should not be allowed to be reduced to the worst of or even the best of earthly judges. God's judgments are totally true and totally just. He sees the entire picture and he makes no mistake and his timing is always precise and his punishment is always commensurate with the crime. That's exactly what we affirm as biblically informed Christians. And so we begin with this healthy, healthy fear of God. That's part of our worship when we come together with a vertical approach. We worship God, not man. And it says here that what he has judged, the counts you might say, or the charges against the great prostitute, which is in context Babylon, as I've already described as this worldly system, 
What the charges against them are is the allurer or seducer of the people and the persecutor of the people. And to put it in, in kind of common terms and to review a theme that's been prominent throughout Revelation, the enemies of God in their organizational structure, they're either trying to woo you into their way of doing things through seduction, or they're going to try to punish you into their way of doing things through sanctions. That's kind of the two things that's coming out here. And it seems as if they're too big to fail. I mean, what would this wee little church have to say about this world system, right? I mean, what would the bride of Christ have to say? What would you as an individual member have to say about this world system? Well, as it turns out, if our focus stays in the right place a lot, as it turns out, our testimony of Jesus is powerful and effective and important, and it's exactly what we're called to to say and be and do, is to testify to Jesus again and again and again in what the world would consider insurmountable odds. But God is calling a people to Himself to be part of His people in relationship with Him through the vehicle of our testimony about Jesus. We testify about Jesus, and fear is part of it. One author said about fearing the Lord, The fear of the Lord is a pleasure to believers, for it is about enjoying His fearfully lovely glory. It's about enjoying His fearfully lovely glory. The fear of the Lord is a pleasure to believers. Differently, we don't have an impotent God. Like, He's generating life all over the place. This is our God. As we're going to see, the Trinity testifies to this. It's God. It says here that God has avenged on Babylon the blood of the saints. It's as if it's a foregone conclusion. Those that do not fear God will bow to God as ruler even if they never acknowledge Him as Father. The idea of smoke in verse 3 that goes up forever and ever into the ages of the ages is the Greek idiom. Forever and ever it goes up. It's it's consistent, and this goes back to the judgments of enemy nations of God that are recorded in the Old Testament as well. Forever and ever, the enemies of God, the smoldering of their suffering will be there. The smoldering of their judgment, rather, will be there. They will forever be enemies of God as they did not want God as their Father. They are forever enemies of God, and there is a point in time when time is called for, when time shall be no more, when there will be no more missions. And that's why I said earlier, as one pastor said, missions is temporary, but our worship is eternal. What you're doing when you gather on the Lord's Day, when you worship together corporately, when you gather together to do this, what you're doing is you are doing something, not just in rehearsal, because it's real right now, but you're doing something that will exist forevermore. It's not stopping. Just the same as God also gets glory, not only through that salvation, but also through the judgment of the enemies that will never acknowledge Him as loving Father. And so just are His punishments. And the, 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 the wonderful, insightful creatures in heaven, the shepherds in heaven, the elders, these 24 and 4 living creatures, they're leading the way and worship God. And they're worshiping the one that's seated on the throne. And they're saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And we're saying it together. So be it, Lord. Praise the Lord. And so there's this healthy fear that we have of God that, that really sort of subsides at a point. And we're called servants as well as brothers. Twice servants is used in this text. You see it in verse 2. You see that the blood of the servants will be avenged. And then in verse 5, we are His servants who praise Him. 
And it doesn't matter. God's not a God of favoritism in this way. If you remember, David was the littlest of the children of Jesse, and God chose him. God has folks of means and folks of smallness in his kingdom, and it seems as if the widow's might was a, a bigger deal than someone that gave from their abundance. It seems as if God does not look on man like we look on man. And so don't look at yourself like man looks at yourself or for the approval of man or you as a man how you think you ought to look at yourself. God's ways are higher than our ways. He's to be feared before he's more fully known as friend and as father. And as we fear him, we back our way into his affections for us, his love for us, which were there from the foundations of the earth. Before I move past this first point to the second one, I want to say uh, one more thing. It says here that the Lord will avenge or bring vengeance on the blood of his servants. Um, I think that's instructive. I think that's instructive. I was thinking about uh, vengeance verses in the Bible, and my mind was drawn to Romans chapter 12. And it's talking about there that love must be genuine or it will degenerate into taking matters into your own hands. And this goes beyond calls for justice in society to personal vengeances with your fellow members and believers. Here's how Romans states it. Love must be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another out of brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, and he's quoting the Torah there, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, revelation is an assurance that God will bring vengeance on his enemies. Revelation is an assurance that God will bring vengeance on his enemies. And so we need to be careful and take care that we aren't seeking to avenge ourselves forevermore in petty disputes amongst one another. There may be a statement here toward our disgruntlement with the worldly system as well, but I don't even think it's necessary to go there at this point. How about just one to another? How about keeping track for vengeance sakes one to another? Love keeps no record of wrongs, the Bible says. This text says, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. And why would we want the wrath of God on our friends anyway? You know, I'm thinking about our worship together when we come together and start our let out with that today. Um, I'm convinced that the gospel by the world's standard seems too thin to bind us together in unity. But I'm also convinced that by God's standard, it's enough. You know, we might not agree on a whole lot of things out there. Right? I mean, someone wants to dig a basement, 
for their house, and some wants to go broader with a ranch-style house. And so, you know, some, some people want big property, some people want little property. Some, some people want to live in an apartment, some people want somewhere else. Some people want to be here, some people want to be there. Some people have resources, some people don't. We have all different ideas about all kinds of different ideas, but I will tell you this. The demand for unity comes here. Our unity is in the gospel of God. And when we gather, our worship is to be united. And angriness gets in the way of it. Vengeance gets in the way of it. This is the place on the Lord's Day where when we gather as fellow servants, we praise Him together and are focused vertically, puts into perspective, and sometimes lays aside any enmity that we have horizontally. I think we should look at worship more often as God's means to help us get over our differences. I think Revelation 19 frames it that way. We must move on to our second point. Our first point was a healthy fear of the Lord and how it, how it readies us for worship. Our second point is not about a healthy fear of God, as if God is simply to be feared, but a, the way that God readies us. The way that God readies us through his love for us. So the first key word was fear, and the second key word is love. In this text, Babylon is guilty of idolatry and immorality. These sins are not idle, as one says. Her idolatry has led her to murder the saints who refuse to participate in that false worship. Her immorality has enabled her to entice the unbelieving world, enslaving the foolish in the worship of what is not God. I mean, does anything have more power among people than religion and sex? Religion is ultimately about knowing God, and idolatry is a corruption of the human impulse to worship. Sex is the sacred union intended for one man and one woman whose marriage relationship is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And sex is the most intimate consummation of that relationship. And these things are completely in view in Revelation 19. If you think the preacher is talking too blatantly today, I think you need to read Revelation 19 again. I would argue that I'm not because Revelation 19 is clear about the implications of these things. Now, before we come to understand this passage and God's deep love for us, we need to be careful about metaphors and we need to understand something about historical marriage in the apostolic period. So, first of all, be careful with metaphors. Metaphors break down. We are the bride of Christ, but Jesus is not your boyfriend, for example. Metaphors break down. Like, we are the body of Christ, but, you know, it's kind of a metaphor. You know, the lesser parts are to be more greatly esteemed than the the seemingly greater parts, and there's this whole mystery to it, but the body, I mean, we're we're not a body. At some point, the metaphor breaks down, right? I mean, you're not going to be in heaven being like a a, a nail on the end of a finger, right? The metaphor stops somewhere. The household of God, a great metaphor, but it stops somewhere. So we need to, with metaphors, we need to be a a little bit, uh, a little bit careful. Metaphors mean something, because they point to a meaning, but the metaphor in and of themselves, they don't, they don't mean that. Also something I said here, we need to understand in the apostolic period what betrothalment and marriage looked like. Now, I'm no scholar on this to the point that I can write you a great treatise 
on the differences between the patterns leading up to the consummation of marriage in the first century and the 21st century. But I have read a bit on it to try to be prepared for days like today. Uh, what I understand from studying history is the reason that Joseph, and it's really sad when we read at Christmas time, right? We read about how Joseph was on the precipice of quietly divorcing his wife that he was betrothed to. It's always confusing for us, I think, but we're also sad because we could feel that moment. Like, Joseph, he's just not, this isn't some kind of a witch trial. Like, Joseph is going to divorce her quietly because he loves her. But the implied in the text is we're warming up to Joseph, and Joseph's going to get an angelic vision, and he's going to realize that Mary really is faithful, and that there's this that, that Mary's going to do something that's that's central to the gospel, and that has never happened in the history of the world, and so on and so forth. And that makes Advent Advent and Christmas Christmas. We're so excited. But in there is this kind of how's he married to her if he's only betrothed to her? How's he married to her if the marriage hasn't been consummated yet? And if you've ever thought that, I think you know you're thinking along reasonable and logical lines. And the answer is pretty straightforward. There was an extended betrothalment period between when a couple was determined that they would marry and when they actually had the wedding celebration and then culminating the consummation of the marriage. And that betrothalment period was so that the dowry could be paid to the bride's family on the one hand and so that the bride could ready herself for the wedding day. She had preparations to make. And I might also say along this line that that betrothalment period carried responsibilities both for the groom and for the bride. In that betrothalment period, the groom might work for the bride's family in order to pay off the dowry or to amass the resources needed in order to show this, this is what I really want. And the bride would be readying for the wedding perhaps her dress her linens. This language helps you understand the verses we've already read and will now read again. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty fields of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. There's this excitement, this giddiness in heaven now, this rejoicing in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Think betrothalment period. His bride has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we have an explanatory note at the end of verse 8. What are these linens supposed to be talking about? It's, like, it's not, not the linens themselves. It's the righteous deeds or acts of the saints. So that we don't have to wonder what the linens are describing. We know because it's right there in the text. To, to, to put it bluntly, in this, this betrothalment period between the first and second coming of Christ, when the groom's going to come for his bride, we are to be readying ourselves. In fact, the language is, we've been granted to ready ourselves for the wedding. That's what we're doing. Every Sunday we come together, in a very real sense, we're granted to ready ourselves for the wedding. Again, it's a metaphor, but it has meaning. It's there for a reason. And let's review what it says here in verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself. Herself. So the bride has been given permission 
and empowerment to clothe herself for the day. So it also says that in verse 7, that the marriage of the Lamb has come. And so it sort of sandwiches with the possession of the marriage being of the Lamb and the initiative of the Lamb being in view, the Lamb, of course, being Jesus Christ, and with it being granted us to pursue certain kinds of clothing to get ready for when the betrothalment will give way to the feast and the consummation. There is a sense in which God's initiative is in view even in our actions and responsibility. So the, the, the way that I would put this in theological terms is the ground of our salvation is in our justification, which God alone does. He justifies us. He makes us in right standing with Him through His work on our behalf. We simply receive it. We, do no, we bring nothing to the table of salvation. Nothing to the table of salvation. But in the chain of salvation, as we could read about in places like Romans 8, in the chain of salvation, we see not only God seeing justification, but also growth or sanctification in the Christian life, as well as glorification when we meet the Lord and at the end of the age. Again, individual and corporate aspects of salvation in view. What I want to point out here is that we are allowed to, we're granted to, participate in sanctification. It's, it's a blessing that God gives us to be able to grow, to be readying ourselves for the end of the betrothalment, for the end of the age. You see? And what's coming at the end of the age? Well, it's explained by a great supper or feast. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, like next Sunday, we'll take the supper. Every time we take it, we are not only looking at Christ's sacrifice, which is important, but we're looking forward to a, a feastal supper at the second coming of the Lord when the betrothal bit period to carry this metaphor forward with the groom of Christ and the bride of the church is completed. Are you tracking so far? Does it make sense? Because a little bit of historical understanding here is important. Now, there's great joy, there's exultation and rejoicing and giving glory to God for this marriage, for this arrangement. The bride is to make herself ready, and the way that we ready ourselves, apparently, is with the righteous deeds of the saints. So, in no way do I want to make this about our works as Christians. Your ground of salvation is in what Christ has done. However, as you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, as the Bible says, because he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. As you're in life, you are pursuing sanctification. You're striving for holiness. And as in the fear of God, which his perfect love then casts out overwhelming fear, we learn in 1 John 4.18, in the fear of God, giving way to the fatherly love of God, as we're pursuing this, these works, these righteous acts, one of the quintessential things that we are pursuing however imperfectly in our past or even in our present this might be, one quintessential description of what we're pursuing in our sanctification is sexual morality. This is the reason why, in an uncharacteristic manner, two times already from this pulpit, I have called out a preacher in this country that declared from his pulpit that this Bible whispers about sexual immorality as compared to other sins. I cannot imagine a more egregious misstatement. 
How in the world do you read the Bible on balance and decide God is ambivalent towards sexual immorality? I mean, the punishment of worldly Babylon is because of her what? Immorality. And metaphors have meaning. It's because of her prostituting herself. It's because of her seeking her own pleasure above and beyond finding pleasure in the groom, in Christ. Now, the reality of this is that we, most of us have been imperfect in this pursuit as Christians, right? So I'm not somehow trying to say that, like, like the accuser of the devil would, that, well, you can't really be God's child because of that, you know. I'm, I'm just simply saying we have to find our voice on this issue. Like, we have to find our voice. Like, we're floundering not finding our voice on this issue. The Bible, in plain speak, straightforwardly says that the sin of Babylon primarily is her immorality. And, by inference, the identifying marker of the righteous deeds of the saints is our pursuit of purity, sexually speaking. Particularly in the covenant of marriage. I hold in my hand a covenant of promise between Skylar Turner and Carrington Tyson. Lord willing, right here, next Saturday, we will, in a 21st century context, end a betrothalment period. That betrothalment period didn't make them married before the wedding day. In our context, it's a commitment, but we don't call them husband and wife until then. But either way, whether you did or didn't call them that, the consummation is supposed to come at the end of the process, whether you're in a 1st century or 21st century context. And what Carrington and Schuyler did, and by the way, I in no wise want to set them up as exemplars in every way. I don't want to declare that they're going to have the perfect marriage, uh, like God owes them something because of his covenant. I'm just saying that you're supposed to give honor where honor is due. This was an honorable thing. I thought this was an honorable thing. Like, if you don't have this as an example, borrow their example and testify to Jesus in borrowing their example. What they did is, it says, covenant of promise, these are the promises we vow to keep with one another, to hold each other accountable to ourselves and to God until marriage. Number one is, I promise to keep myself pure from all sexual relations until we are joined by the covenant of marriage. At the end, it says, these promises are binding until marriage and cannot be altered or changed, even by the consent of both parties, so as to keep one another from stumbling, Skylar and Carrington. Now, oh, well, that's really cute, isn't it? I mean, that's just so cute. Don't you just want to pinch your cheeks? Just you don't get it. You flat out don't get it. If that's, your idea, if that's how you look at this, you don't get it. I mean, you haven't read Revelation 19. You have no idea about the things of God, if that's how you look at this. Oh, aren't they just cute? They're fighting sin in a way we should. Well, that's really cute. They, they must not have the same DNA that I do. They got the same parents, Adam and Eve, as you do. Now, in no way am I saying, like, I mean, there are probably a hundred things that they're going to need to learn about marriage. But this thing is right. And we ought to give honor where honors due, right? Purity is a, is a marker of the bride of Christ. It's central. And where we have failed, the only thing to do is repent of that sin and go forward. But we should not whitewash that dead tomb as if it didn't corrupt or rot the culture around us, as if our immorality is reserved simply for harming ourselves. It is a community-harming sin with community-harming ramifications. That's why church discipline is enacted on the sexually immoral man, as recorded in 1 Corinthians 5, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It goes through the whole body. And the implications for the bride of Christ, with the bread of Christ, in the supper of Christ, with communion, are obviously there. Uh, I don't stand before you as a person that's got this all figured out, that's perfect, or anything to that extent. All I'm saying is, it's time for us to make sure we talk the way the Bible talks when it comes to purity. 
It's time for us to talk that way. That may mean accelerating timelines for wedding dates. It may mean putting economic concerns on the back burner and spiritual concerns on the front. It may mean more discipline. It may mean recognizing, being honest about the fact that certain people in certain stages of life or for all of life have the gift of singleness. They've been called to it. It may mean many, many different things for many different people. I'm sure that it does. But the bottom line is heteronormative behavior is not some political football when it comes to the church. Heteronormative behavior is God's desired behavior. One man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime. And that's why they're going to throw us in jail. And that's why they're going to make fun of us. And that's why they're not going to like us. Because Revelation 19 says so. And I'll tell you something else. I just love how God works. You think, man, he's telling me a lot of something else. We're going to be here till 3 o'clock this afternoon. But I'll tell you how God works in all sincerity. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I've read it before, but I've seen it play out. Even the pagan marriages, if it's one man and one woman for a lifetime, in a way, they testify to the gospel, and they don't even want to. Like, it's got to be Romans 1 kind of trickery from Satan as we approach the end of time. It's got to be trickery from Satan that we so mess up the role relationship between man and woman. I mean, we, we can't even describe maleness as maleness and femaleness as femaleness, right, in the culture. I mean, so Babylon it is. You make your choice, bride. Which way are you going to go? I mean, the contrast is clear. Oh, well, pastor, well, pa don't pastor me. I have a higher authority than you, man. And you have a higher authority, too. It's God. And he didn't set this up for you to just sort of play, eh, I don't care. About no, that's not how he set it up. This text is clear. I mean, it's right here at the end of your Bible. So I, I simply would say when people are married in a one flesh union, operating with some kind of sanctimonious in that, Way in that they're actually pointing to the marriage supper of the Lamb, whether they mean to or not. It's one of the reasons we hold up marriage as good, not only in a special grace sense, but in a common grace sense. Like it's 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 a gateway to share the gospel when people understand maleness and femaleness in marriage. And it's a curse on our land that we don't. This is a pre-political issue. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what does Genesis say he made? Male and female. And who was the officiant, the first pastoral officiant over the very first wedding in the history of the world? The garden temple officiant was God himself, was it not? And in a worshipful setting, he stands before Adam and Eve, who he made, and he said, the two will become one flesh, and this is very good. This is a good thing. It's only in Genesis 3 with the emergence of sin and the dragon and the serpent leading us into sin, Satan leading us into sin, that we wind up making a mess of it. So God is he's writing for himself a people, but he's doing it through love. See, it's, it's not that he's here to, to, to punish you for everything you've ever done wrong. What he's trying to do is say, I know better than you know. Let's do this my way. From this moment forward, let's do it my way. The enemy will say to you, well, you can't possibly, you couldn't come to that way of thinking. Tell that to the Apostle Paul who held the cloaks of people and organized the wanton persecution and death of authentic Christians in the first century before he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament after God saved his soul. This is about love. Marriage is about love. God is love. Before he was creator, before he ruled all that he created, he was perfect love in himself, the father, the son, and the spirit. 
Revelation 19, 6 to 8 says that, that joy comes to us when we embrace this. Look at verses 9 and 10, finally. After the fear and the love that are identifiable in God writing himself people to worship him and in how we worship now, we finally find the importance of being instructed, of being instructed. That worship is about instruction. Now, these are two things that we don't think go together so much, but they do. Our worship and reading the Bible and considering the Bible together, it's about instruction. There's a doctrinal core to it. The Bible is consistent because God carried along the authors as they wrote it down. And so the Bible's consistent. And what we find in these last two verses is the importance of our worship being instructed. I let out with this in the introduction. Sometimes in our customer approach to Scripture, I'm sorry, to worship, in our consumeristic approach to corporate worship, we can think that our preferences are fully sanctified and that we ought to know what we are looking for in a church in worship. And the truth of the matter is all of us have to make discernments whenever we choose a church to go to and a membership body to pledge with. But we instantly move once we choose from simple critics or consumers and customers to participants and worshipers. And we move to a place within that body where we're coming together every Sunday with a unity that may not be self-evident out there and with a kind of uniformity within that unity in the gospel that is a testimony to the world of Jesus. And it's instructable and it's instructive. Listen to how this plays out in the last two verses. It says, The angel said to John, Write this down. Blessed, or ble- it's kind of like the Beatitudes. This is the fourth of seven blessings in the intensification cycle of the blessedness of God's people in Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of a lamb. That's neat, isn't it? It's like you've got an A-list invitation to a great event. It, you realize that the, I mean, of all the events that you've got to get to in the next year, you realize that the most important event you're ever going to get to in your lifetime is the marriage feast of the Lamb. There is no more important event. You're not readying your linens and your dress code and everything else. But there's nothing more important than that day. That's the day that you should have marked on your invisible calendar out there when time shall be no more is this day. Right? And it's a marriage. The, Jesus and his church. And, and we're blessed if we're invited and you're invited if you're saved. Isn't that good? Bring up the level a little bit in all this fighting for sanctification we're doing. You're blessed if you're invited and you're invited if you're saved. Are you a child of the one true God? Have you received this gospel? Then you're invited. This day will be for you. And I need to say something in this joyous moment to those of you that are not yet invited. You have not yet received the gospel that's been prepared for you. I want you to get out of your head about it, and I want you to receive the Lord that's called you to receive him. You are a product of all this corruption, just the same as the rest of us. And you no longer have to live under the bondage of your will in complete defiance to Christ forevermore. You simply come to him in faith and receive him today. I don't have some special words for you to read. I'm saying as an act of your will, give your life to him today. Trust his testimony today. You could join us. We can talk about it. You could join us. And that's a day on your calendar, the most important day 
that can be on the calendar is the day in which Christ will return and consummate his kingdom. What a great feast it will be. And it's so amazing here because this blessedness for those who are invited, for those who are saved, those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's, it's amazing the way that this, this goes on. It's supposed to be written down for our edification, I think, as we don't only fear, but we're loved, and we don't only love, but we're instructed so that we can live in light of this worship that God's fanning into flame as we head toward when time shall be no more. And it says that these are true words. It says he said to, to, to John, these are true words of God. And so John as he gets close to the man of God, he, he falls down to his feet to worship the, the angelic messenger. And, and I, I think when we read this, this happens twice at the end of Revelation here, and then again in chapter 22. I think when we read this, we think, well, man, John, he's really, he must be senile at this point. I mean, he's falling down in front of angels. He's not getting it. But I, I don't think that's why that's there. And I'm going to tell you what, I, as I was thinking and meditating on this passage for today in this third point, I'll tell you what I think, my, why it might be there. And maybe you have a different view on this, and we'd be glad to talk about it over lunch or throughout the week or whatnot. John falls, I think, before the angelic messenger because the, the more like God the servants of God become, angel or human, the more like God we become, particularly here now talking about the servants of God that are man, the more like God we look, the closer we get to the throne, the more that we see it, the, the more that we tend to be awestruck by that special saint. You probably know one in your life. Somebody that you look to, you're in your, when you're in their presence, almost always, with some minor exceptions, that special saint makes you, you feel empowered in the, in the gospel, you feel, you feel assured in the gospel. You, they, it's uplifting for you to be around that person, right? They're not impatient with you. They're pointing the way. And so it can be very, it's a very small slide for us to, to, to look to that person to be more to us than what they're supposed to be. And what can happen is we can, we can have a kind of connection with that spe- special saint in our lives, that special person, that special believer, where we depend on them instead of going straight to the source. Jesus is our source. And we need to draw strength from him. And, and this, these people that serve us, and they, they do serve us, we must never get to the point to where we're de facto worshiping them. We must always take responsibility, especially in a congregational church setting. We must always take responsibility for the testimony of Jesus, for guarding the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, for having a gospel testimony. We must always take responsibility for that, and we, we must take care that we don't put too much emphasis on a man that isn't Jesus. And I'm not trying to run down any way you should... Elders are mentioned in this passage. You should have spiritual mentors, men and women, shepherds and shepherdesses. I'm not running any of that down. I'm simply saying, don't dodge your responsibility to get power from Jesus and to share his testimony. Don't dodge that with, because someone is, is, is there in between. And be very, very, take, take great care that you put man in their proper place. I, I have a kind of, uh, there's a kind of mentality, a kind of nostalgia with spiritual things where we look to grandma or we look to mom, we look to somebody that's gone on home, and boy, we really draw strength from that special saint. And I think that's all good. But you're a special saint. You're a special saint. Jesus died for you. God is your Father. The Spirit indwells you. And I just wonder if that's not part of what we could take from this passage. 
And he says, don't worship me. He says, I'm another servant. I'm a fellow servant with you, it says in verse 10, to end the passage. And with your brothers. It's, with all of them is the implication. Everybody who holds to the testimony of Jesus. And there's, there's our theme again, right? You see it? Those two words? Worship God. Worship God. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In conclusion today, I'd like to just encourage you that God is readying you as his people by your worship here for your worship then. And he's readying you through the healthy fear of the Lord that was the beginning of knowledge. And his perfect love that casts out fear is readying you because of his affection for you and his love for you as his bride and his people right now. And he's instructing your heart and your worship that you may more and more See yourself as the special saint that Jesus sees you. You are his. He is yours. We are in a loving relationship. And that makes all of the difference. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us not to be distracted by anger, endless pursuits of revenge. Help us to be focused on you, and your vastness. Help us to be sharing a healthy fear of you with those who need to begin in the knowledge of you. Oh Lord, help us to not be distracted by immorality, but to pursue the righteous deeds of the saints to be dressed for the day of the end of our betrothal period when we as the bride will be adorned for the groom, the lamb, at the end of time. And Lord, help us not to be distracted by special servants, by special saints that have pointed us the way, but are not themselves the way. Help us to let go of vengeance. Help us to pursue purity. And help us to pursue you and our worship with all the brothers and sisters throughout history today and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. And before I conclude it, Let's take about 30 seconds to consider how we might want to lift our thoughts up to God individually in prayer. Say amen with me. Amen. Remember this this week, my friends.